Amen. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn in them to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Uh, my name is Josh, and uh, I'm one of the pastors of Four Oaks. It's great uh, to be with you this morning. It's a real privilege to be here. Uh, I'm happy to be with you, and I'm happy that we get to welcome a very special guest this morning. This is someone who hasn't been with us uh, for several weeks. We've missed him, and uh, he's making his emotional return to our fellowship uh, this morning. And of course, I'm talking about the AC unit. Amen. <laughs> And uh, amen. I hear it's been pretty hot in here, right? Has it been hot? Trey's nodding. Listen, middle of July in Tallahassee, if you're an air conditioning unit, that's your time to shine. And uh, at least for today, we hope he's going to be shining. So that's a good thing. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, if you're new, the uh, elders of Four Oaks Church have recommended to the members of the church that we adopt the Gospel Coalition's confessional statement as our church's statement of faith. And uh, we're going to ask the members to vote on the adoption of that statement uh, in the early fall. And in order to help you to do that with a clear conscience and a real clear understanding of what that means, we've set aside 13 weeks this summer to march through the 13 articles of the new statement of faith that we're proposing in a series that we're calling Truth Matters. And uh, it's just been a really rich time uh, diving into the essential doctrines of our faith, the truths that unite us as a family of believers. Last week was just awesome. Lance, thanks for serving us last week by leading us in our consideration of Article 6, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's my privilege this morning to open up for us Article 7, the redemption of of Christ. And I'm really excited about this because we get to spend the next few moments together gazing at and beholding the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if you're able and willing, I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. And we'll read together from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace." For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so ends the reading of the holy, inerrant, inspired word of God. Surely the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God's not like that. The word of God remains forever. Would you pray with me? Jesus, grace upon grace is what we need. And grace upon grace is who you are. Open up our eyes this morning and open up our hearts so that we might behold wondrous truths about you. Truths that change everything. Truths that matter in our lives, truths that matter for our circumstances today, and truths that matter and will reverberate into eternity. Meet us, we pray, as we come under 
your word. Do it for your glory and for our joy. And all God's people said, amen. You can take your seats. Who is Jesus? All of history turns on the answer to that question. And your life and my life turn on the answer to that question as well. And, And you know, I find it really interesting. Despite how quickly Christian doctrine, Christian teaching, and Christian ethics are falling out of favor in our Western culture, you know, Jesus' stock is, is it's still pretty high, right? In a way. In a way. In our culture, Jesus' stock is still pretty high as long as the Jesus we're talking about is the Jesus who conforms to our image of who we want him to be. I brought up uh, a, few, a few quotes, a small sampling of the spirit of our age when it comes to how we think about Jesus. Ricky Gervais, anybody know who Ricky Gervais is? He's an actor, comedian, very vocal atheist. Ricky Gervais said, I loved Jesus growing up. He was a kind man who cared about the poor and stuck up for them, all that. It's just the supernatural thing I don't buy. He's just a great role model. Elton John, Sir Elton John, he had some thoughts on the growing cultural acceptance of of gay marriage last year. He said, we live in a different time. If Jesus Christ was alive today, I cannot see him as the Christian person that he was and the great person that he was saying that gay marriage couldn't happen. He was all about love and compassion and forgiveness and trying to bring people together. And that's what the church should be about. Earlier this month, uh, a man named Bob Shore Goss who is a homosexual pastor in Southern California, announced that his studies have convinced him that Christ's relationship with several people in the New Testament were, in fact, erotic, and that Jesus was gay. And he said that if the Apostle Paul were alive today, we would call him a closeted homosexual, which is lovely. And recent studies published by George Barna indicate that while the vast majority of Americans still believe that Jesus lived, that he was a, a historical person who lived on the earth, only around half of them believe that he was either sinless or divine. And that number gets even smaller among millennials. Do you see why truth matters? Who is Jesus really? Well, all of Article 7 of the Gospel Coalition Confessional Statement, and really, in fact, all of the New Testament exists to help us see Jesus accurately so that we might know him personally. Because what we want this morning is not Jesus as we project him to be, not the Jesus that we fashion in our own image. What we want this morning is the true Jesus because truth matters. And the truth about Jesus matters perhaps most of all. And so here's the truth about the person and work of Jesus. This is Article 7 of the Gospel Coalition Confessional Statement. The Redemption of Christ. It'll be on the screen behind me, I believe. We believe that, moved by love and obedience to his Father, the Eternal Son became human. The Word became flesh, fully God and fully human being, one person in two natures. The man Jesus, the promised Messiah of Israel, was conceived through the miraculous agency of the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. He perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father, lived a sinless life, performed miraculous signs, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead on the third day, and ascended into heaven. As the mediatorial king, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, exercising in heaven and on earth all of God's sovereignty and is our high priest and righteous advocate. We believe that by his incarnation, life, death, 
and resurrection and ascension, Jesus Christ acted as our representative and substitute. He did this so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, he canceled sin, propitiated God, and by bearing the full penalty of our sins, reconciled to God all those who believe. By his resurrection, Christ Jesus was vindicated by his Father, broke the power of death, and defeated Satan who once had power over it, and brought everlasting life to all his people. By his ascension, he has been forever exalted as Lord and has prepared a place for us to be with him. We believe that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Because God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, no human being can ever boast before him. Christ Jesus has become for us Wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. This article is it's beautiful and it is expansive. It covers basically all of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It covers his eternal divinity, his coming in the flesh, his death for sinners, his resurrection, his ascension, his mediation before the Father, and his return. And it would take us a lot of time to go through every, uh, all the ground that's covered in this article. And so fortunately, just after Easter, uh, we did a series that covers the resurrection, ascension, mediation, and return of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is to just really anchor us down in the first half of this statement, where we see four essential truths about Jesus, four non-negotiables that help us answer the question of who is Jesus. First, Jesus is eternal God. Second, Jesus became flesh. Third, Jesus died for sinners. And fourth, Jesus reveals God. So let's walk through those four essential truths about Jesus. First, Jesus is eternal God. You saw in those quotes a moment ago that I, that I read to you, the world loves Jesus, the good example. The world loves Jesus, the, the nonviolent cultural revolutionary. They love Jesus, the guru, the the cultural icon, Jesus, the good teacher, Jesus, the good example. But Jesus is much more than that. And the Gospel of John is written with a very specific purpose in mind to help us understand the, the, the scope of who Jesus is. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John writes, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That means the anointed one, the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is John's whole purpose in writing this book. And right out of the gate, in the first verse of this book, he, out, he, he lays out this character who is the Word. In verse 14, it talks about the Word becoming flesh. Who's the Word? Well, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. John wants you to understand that the word, the logos, is Jesus. And he is eternal. He is the creator. He is the creative agent for all that exists. And he has authority over all that he's made. This comes through very clearly in Jesus' own words about himself as you walk through the gospel of John as well. Here are just a few examples. 
In John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath, and he's being persecuted for having done this. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father and making himself equal with God. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is having another conflict with the Jewish leaders, and he says to them, Before Abraham was, I am. John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Make no mistake. Jesus claimed to be the eternal God. He claimed to have God's own authority. And here's why this is important. These claims make it impossible to reduce Jesus to just a good teacher or just a good example for us to follow. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote what's been called the Jesus Trilemma. It means Jesus is either lunatic, liar, or Lord. Maybe you've heard this before. The claims that Jesus made for himself, that he forgives sins, that that he has always existed, that he will one day judge the world, the man who's making these claims couldn't merely be a good teacher. Because either these claims are, are false, and he's a devilish liar or a delusional person, or his claims are true, and he's the God of the universe. It has to be one or the other. Think about this for a second. If I stood up here today, and instead of saying, I'm speaking God's truth to you, what if I stood up and I said, I'm God, and here's the truth that I say to you? It's a very different thing, right? You probably wouldn't like sit at Chili's after church and say, man, Josh was a great teacher today, right? You'd probably be like, that dude is nuts. Let's get away from him. At least I hope you would say that. Well, that's the sort of authority Jesus claimed for himself. That's what he said about himself, because that's who he was and who he is. And so Lewis said, you can shut Jesus up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. The question we have to reckon with is, is Jesus eternal God or not? And if he is, if he is God, what does that mean for my life? What does that mean for the the authority that he claims in my life? N.T. Wright says it this way. I, I love this quote. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? That the fire has become flesh? That life, capital L, life itself, came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that... Or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a deceitful bit of play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. The point that he's making is this. Jesus is God, or he's a sham. It's one or the other. These are the only two options that have integrity. And if Jesus isn't a sham, if he is who he says he is, if he is the eternal, transcendent, all-powerful, uncreated God, then he has authority over all things. Not just churchy things, not just, not just holy things, not just the things we consider in this place when we gather on Sundays, but all things. He's Lord over your money, your sexuality, your marriage, your singleness, your every moment. He is that or he's 
nothing. And what Wright is saying in that quote is that most of us can't bear the weight of living under either one of those options. And so we settle to live in the shallow world in between. And so we play games with Jesus, don't we? When we're confronted with issues of difficult obedience, we say things like, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really think that he would judge X as sinful. I don't believe Jesus would make these claims on my sexual identity. I don't think Jesus would make these claims on how we organize ourselves in our marriage as man and woman. I believe in Jesus, but I don't have to submit these areas of my life to him because Jesus isn't about judgment. He's about love and forgiveness. Don't live in that place. That's the shallow world in between. Don't play games with Jesus. He is the eternal God and he has ultimate authority in your life. And the question we have to ask is, how are we responding to his authority as God? Are we seeking to bring every every aspect of our lives, every square inch of our lives, are we seeking to bring it into glad submission to Jesus' authority? Jesus is the eternal God. But Jesus wasn't just fully God, he was also fully man. Our second essential truth about Jesus is that he became flesh. The article says this, we believe that moved by love and in obedience to his father, the eternal son became human. The word became flesh, fully God and fully human being, one person in two natures. This word who was with the father from the beginning, who created everything and has authority over everything, became like us and walked among us. It's the reality we celebrate every Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a far off, detached deity. He is the God who moves into the neighborhood. He's conceived by the agency of the Holy Spirit and he retains his full divinity, though he sets aside for a time certain of his divine rights and he walks among us as a man. And I know if you've been in church for a while, you're familiar with this, but I just want to ask you, when was the last time you were staggered by the reality that the God of the universe became like us? Just think about this for a second. Think about what this means. First, Jesus had needs. The one who never needed anything, the one who rules sovereignly over the entire cosmos, became a baby. A baby, like a real baby who who went to the bathroom and cried and probably resisted being swaddled and probably was hard to get down for naps. You know what I'm saying? Anyone? Anyone met a real baby? He was like that. Can you imagine holding the God of the universe in your arms? Can you imagine changing his diapers, burping him after he's eaten, or dressing him in whatever ironic onesie you want to have to impress your friends? Jesus was a real baby with real needs. You know, Jesus got tired. I love this about Jesus. In in John chapter 4, Jesus is leaving Judea to head to Galilee, and he makes a stop along the way in Samaria. It says it's about the sixth hour. That means it's noon. It's very hot. And here's what the text says in verse 6 of John chapter 4. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside a well, and it was about the sixth hour. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Jesus, 
who flung the stars into the, into the heavens, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, sitting down next to a well, leaning up against it, wiping the sweat off his brow, maybe massaging his, his calves or his hammies because he's tired from the long journey. Jesus knows what it's like to feel wrung out and exhausted. We've been doing Whole30 the last few weeks, and... Uh, that feeling of like desperate exhaustion that you sort of live with all the time, if you've ever done it. Jesus knows that feeling. Jesus understands what that's like. Jesus got tired. Jesus cried. Jesus had a friend die. Jesus knows what that feels like to stand at the burial place of someone that you love dearly. He stood outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus and, and Jesus wept tears of sorrow, tears of frustration and anger over the brokenness of the world, just like many, many of you have. Jesus suffered. Jesus experienced greater suffering than you or I could ever come close to imagining. He was betrayed by a dear friend. He was subjected to the cruelest, most humiliating, most dehumanizing torture that had ever been invented in human history at that time. Jesus was a man who experienced the full range of human frailty. Aren't you glad we serve a Savior like that? You know, right before he died, Rich Mullins wrote a song that I really love. And Rich just had a way with, with capturing aspects of the human Christian experience. He wrote a song called Hard to Get. And in this song, he wrestles through questions of, of Jesus' ability to identify with us, to understand the experience of, of life in a broken world. And in this song, he rhetorically asks these questions of Jesus. He says, did you ever know loneliness? Did you ever know need? Do you remember just how long a night can get? When you are barely holding on and your friends fall asleep and don't see the blood that's running in your sweat. Maybe these are a little bit like the questions that some of you are asking right now. Jesus, do you know how hard my situation is right now? Maybe you're a new mom and you're, you're asking, Jesus, do you know how exhausted I feel? Maybe you're stuck in a job that you don't like that's not meeting the needs that you have and you're saying, Jesus, do you know how beat down I feel from trying to make this work? Maybe your marriage is unraveling and you're asking, Jesus, do you know how frustrated I am with this situation and how helpless I feel to try to fix it and try to do something about it? Do you know how helpless and lonely I am? And the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus is the answer is yes. Jesus knows. He understands. He knows every sorrow. He knows every need. He knows every hunger and thirst, every dark night of the soul. And his coming in the flesh is a billboard displaying his commitment, not only to identify with our need, but to do something about it as well. Leads to our third point. Jesus died for sinners. The article says Jesus acted as our representative and substitute. He did so that in him, excuse me, he did this so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
On the cross, he canceled sin, propitiated God, and by bearing the full penalty of our sins, reconciled to God all those who believe. This is Jesus was our representative and our substitute. Let's look at those two things really quick. Jesus wasn't just a man, but Jesus was a sinless man. And he represented sinful humanity with his sinless life. In order to understand what this means, we have to go all the way back to the beginning and look at Adam. You see, Adam wasn't just the first man, but he was our representative head, meaning he stood in the place of all of humanity. And so if Adam succeeded, we all succeeded. And if Adam failed, we all failed. It was a little bit like uh, last Sunday night watching the U.S. women's national team win the gold cup, right? The gold medal. World cup. Chris Pope was going to be really mad at me if I got that wrong. We all felt like we were there, right? We felt like we all scored four goals in the first 16 minutes. At least we did at my house. We were all like part of Team USA that night. Adam represented us. And we know what happened. The first Adam failed. He was placed in the garden and given very clear parameters for how God's designed this place to work. Adam failed. He couldn't follow those instructions. He couldn't obey God. And Romans 5, 12 says that consequently, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all are inheritors of Adam's sin nature. We all live under the weight of the consequences of Adam's rebellion. And we continue to repeat the same pattern that our first father displayed for us. But Jesus came as the second Adam. And where the first Adam failed to obey God perfectly, the second Adam has succeeded. Jesus lived a perfect life without sin. He perfectly obeyed his heavenly father. And as a result, when he went to the cross, he did so as the perfect man. He did so as our representative, standing in the place of guilty sinners. He was our representative. He's also our substitute. And we're going to dive deeply into the doctrine of justification next week. But let me just read for you right now what what John MacArthur calls the greatest gospel verse in the entire Bible. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is what it means that Jesus was our substitute. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And here's what this means. On the cross, God made Jesus the sinless man, the only one who could represent sinful humanity to become sin. And here's what that means. God treated Jesus as though he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe. And though Jesus was holy and righteous and perfectly obedient to God, God treats him as though he had sinned. Another way of saying that is as though he lived my life. And then God treats me as though I had lived the perfect life without sin. And though I am sinful, unrighteous, and perfectly disobedient to God, God treats me as though I had lived Jesus' life. That's what substitution means. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. The exchange of my filth, my sin, my brokenness, my inability to do what God required is exchanged for Jesus' purity, perfection, and holiness. And now, Christ gets what I deserve. 
wrath, judgment, separation from God. And I get, you get, all who trust in Jesus Christ get what he deserved. Forgiveness, righteousness, peace with God, sonship, acceptance, peace in life. And this substitution, this exchange, is a finished work for everyone who trusts in Jesus. And this is a truth that changes absolutely everything. I don't know what you think is your greatest problem. But your greatest problem is not your finances, it's not your marital struggles, it's not your your physical suffering, it's not your struggles with your sexual identity or whatever else you might think it is. Your greatest problem is that you are under the just judgments of God because of your sin. And at the cross, Jesus dealt with your greatest problem for you. Do you believe that? The good news is that you can be right with God, not because of your performance, not because of your behavior, not because of anything you can do in your own strength. You have to know this. You have to understand this. You cannot pray enough, read your Bible enough, serve in children's ministry enough, give enough, attend your fellowship group enough to earn God's favor. Every one of us has no righteousness to offer of our own. You cannot be good enough to be right with God. But the good news is that Jesus was good enough for you. And though you have no righteousness to offer, Jesus has a perfect righteousness to give you. So let's be done with performance-based spirituality. Let's be done with pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Let's be done with boasting in our own righteousness. Our only boast is in the righteousness of another. I heard a great illustration of this recently. There was a summer camp where the daily routine went something like this. You start with breakfast first thing in the morning, and then everyone goes back to their cabins to clean up. And after the cleanup time, you go to chapel, and while you're in chapel, the counselors inspect the cabins, and they come back at the end of the assembly, uh, and they announce before the whole group who has the cleanest cabin. And uh, they win a prize or a party or candy or whatever you give kids. And there was a group of boys uh, one day who had no interest in cleaning their cabins. And they were tired of being badgered about it. They were tired of being measured against the performance. They were probably tired of the girls always winning, right? That's probably what happened. And so they had this idea. They decided to go the other direction. They decided to absolutely trash their cabin. Make it as nastified as it could possibly be. And then go off to, uh, to the chapel assembly and when the counselors came by, they, they saw the rebellion of these boys. Uh, aren't these boys clever? But instead of punishing them, instead of disciplining them or marking them down with demerits or, or whatever, these counselors decided to illustrate the gospel for these boys. And they pulled together some of the other counselors and they went to work and they cleaned the cabin themselves from top to bottom, cleaning out every nook and cranny. They had like the pledge out. They had the The mops going, this cabin was pristine from top to bottom. And then they went to the assembly. And when it was time to announce the the award for the cleanest cabin, they called those boys forward and gave them the prize. Boys were absolutely stunned 
and shocked. They understood that they didn't deserve the award. In fact, they had done everything they possibly could have done not to deserve the reward. And the same is true for you and me. We don't deserve God's favor. We've done nothing to earn it. In fact, we've done everything we possibly could not to earn God's favor. But if you're in Christ, someone did it all for you. Understand this. We come to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, but we also come to Jesus for the righteousness that we need to be right with God. And he gives it to us freely as a gift. Verse 16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That grace is yours through Jesus Christ. That's who he is. And that leads us to our our last point. Jesus reveals God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him known. And that phrase, made him known, comes from the Greek word exegeomai, and that's the word from which we get our English word exegete, which means to interpret, to unpack, to make known. And what John is saying is that Jesus came to exegete God. He came to reveal to us what God is like and to reveal his, his heart for us, to embody God's, God's, God's character and nature for us. Jesus is God's self-disclosure. God doesn't hide himself or stand far off. Instead, he takes the initiative to move toward his enemies. In sending Christ, God, God opens himself up to us. He shows us what he's truly like. And you know, that, that's one of the reasons that, that, that we love to be in community as a church. That's one of the reasons we call you to be in fellowship group, to make yourself known to other people. Because self-disclosure is not just a good relational technique. Self-disclosure is, is, is part of how we bear the image of God. We were made to know and to be known in relationship. When we look at the Trinity, we see, we see the perfect unity of relationship, and we seek to model that in our own lives. You know, the way most of us endure the world is by, is by remaining closed off, by concealing our true selves, by, by hiding our weaknesses in our sins. And if we ever do disclose anything about ourselves, it's, it's typically very carefully crafted with all the risk managed out of it in such a way that denies the reality of our true need. So I just want to encourage you. Jesus shows us what God is like. Jesus is God's, God's opening of himself. Open yourself to other believers. Open yourself to God through other believers. James 5 says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Bear God's image in this way. And finally, what do we, what do we see in God's self-disclosure? What, what do we see when God opens up himself to us? We see love. Why did the eternal God take on flesh? Why did he come and get his hands in the dirt and live among us? Why did he go to the cross to suffer the death that we should have died. Why? Because God loves us. Because his heart for us is full of grace and acceptance and love and he desires for you to know him and to be restored to the relationship for which you were created. Relationship with the God who made you and loves you. 
If you're a Christian, I want to ask you, do you believe that God loves you? I've sat with several people, even just recently, have you ask them that, do, do you believe that God loves you? They have a really hard time saying yes. If that's where you are, just know, know that's a common thing. Martin Luther said, uh, long before he discovered the beauty of, of justification and his acceptance with God, he said this, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. When Jesus Christ, we see God's not angry with you anymore. He's moved towards you in love. And this is where Christianity, guys, this is where Christianity is different than any other system of belief in the world. Never let anyone tell you that all religions are the same. Never let anyone tell you that Jesus is just like every other prophet or good teacher or, or God of other religious systems. The message of every other religion in the world is get to work. Do this, do this, do that, and you just might earn God's favor and live. Here's the mountain, now go climb it. The message of Jesus is, come to me, because I've done it all. The message of Jesus is, there's the mountain, and I climbed it for you. I've done it all, and the only requirement that I have is that you're worn out, weary, beaten down, and ready to receive the love that's better than life. Come to me. I've earned God's favor for you, and now you can live in the good of what I've accomplished for you. In John seven thirty seven, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, and he cries out to us today, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you thirst today? Do you thirst for acceptance, for, for approval? Do you thirst for freedom? Do you thirst for, for significance or meaning for your life? Do you, do you thirst to be known and accepted? Come to Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus. The gospel isn't good instructions. It's not a good example for us to follow. It's not good advice from a good teacher. It's good what? Good news. It's an, it's an announcement of here is Jesus and here's what he's done. Come and receive from his hand. It's the good news that the eternal God, Jesus Christ, in lavish love, in grace upon grace, came in the flesh lived the perfect life where you and I failed. And he went to the cross to die the death that we should have died. And he rose in victory over our enemies of Satan, sin, and death to secure life for all who would trust in him. And he's coming again one day in glory to bring the fullness of his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. And this Jesus holds himself out for you today.